0: Yeah, so Daniel Schaefer, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time out of the day and, and yeah, it's great. Uh, coming great on to here. to meet you.
1: Thanks for having me here.
0: Yeah, how many podcasts have you been on?
1: Uh, I've been on quite a few. Have mostly you? about business, uh, about my business, or, you know, I'm in the commercial real estate world. Yeah. Um, we own apartment buildings all over the United States. It's really like a mutual fund for apartments, if you want to think about our business. It's a really a fund management business, but yeah. it also has a huge operational component to it. And, um, and so, I've been on a number of different podcasts talking about the economy and real estate and blah, blah, blah.
0: That's awesome. How um, did you get into that?
1: So, I mean, I've kind of lived in everywhere and done everything, but I was, earlier in my career, I've had a couple of different careers, like, yeah. like on my third or fourth career, which, you know, that's just how it goes. I'm I'm in my mid-50s, so um, so I've been around a little bit. But basically, I started out as an accountant, I was a CPA with a big firm, and then, it was all right. I learned a lot, but I decided I needed to go to business school because I really wanted to be on Wall Street. That was yeah. kinda of like back in the nineties I was like, I want to be an investment banker. And so I went to business school at the University of Chicago. So we moved from Dallas to Chicago. We had a brand new baby. My wife's like, What are you doing to us? We moved to Chicago. I got a I got a degree in business and then uh, from there we moved to Manhattan and I went to work for a, a big investment bank called Morgan Stanley. And I was an investment banker and that job was insane. Like the minimum was probably eighty hours a week, multiple hundred hours. Would you when it you say like, like I can, you can't even tell you've done a week like that? You can't even imagine how much work that
0: is. What is a day for like an investment banker there? Yeah. What so does that look like? I
1: mean, every day is different. But yeah. You know, because half the time you're trying to help win business. Yeah. Right. Because there's always business development going on, and so you've got some senior guy saying, "Hey, we need to go three days from now to pitch this company on a merger," so you need to analyze every single division of the company you need to uh, tell us what they're worth and you got to you know of both companies then you got to go do a whole pitch deck and so you might be like crap okay this is going to take me 72 hours the meetings in 72 hours and so you just never go home is it like high right. paced like you got a team usually there's the teams are small and thin so there'll be like you know there's like a brand new analyst guy who will be, like, right out of college helping you crunch the numbers. And you're crunching numbers and putting together presentations, and you're thinking about the economics of deals. And then you've got a couple senior guys kind of telling you what to do, waiting for you to get the work done, bas- <laughs> basically. <laughs> and so, you know, I, one, one of my craziest experiences, we actually were hired on a merger of a big Mexican glass manufacturing company. And they made auto glass and, and building materials. And they were trying to merge with a British glass company that supplied most of the glass to, uh, to BMW. It was, cl- it was a company in Mexico called Vitro and a company in England called Pilkington. And the merger never ended up happening, but we're, but the two companies are having discussions. And so we had been hired by the Mexican company. Uh, and um, And so we had like, you know, I think there were seven divisions of Pilkington and there were like five divisions of Vitro. And we had to basically figure out what every division was worth to figure out, hey, how do we combine these two companies and what's the appropriate value, right? Is it
0: tough with the currency difference and stuff yeah, like that I as mean, well? Not, not as much.
1: I mean, you, could, you can kind of dollarize everything, yeah. but really the, the, the idea is, you know, as an investment banker, you're a valuation specialist, right? You can either help companies buy and sell each other or you can help companies sell stocks or sell bonds. So you, it's all about valuation. So anyway, we, we had this meeting on a Wednesday, I think it is, and I had, me and my team had worked all weekend and, and I, I think I got home, like, at 10 o'clock Sunday night, and I told my wife, this might be a long week. And so I showed up at work Monday morning, and it was clear by Monday night we weren't getting there. So I, I worked all Monday night with my staff, and then Tuesday morning I ran home, got a shower. We worked all day Tuesday. We thought we were mostly done, jumped on an airplane to Mexico. We show up in Monterrey, and the CFO of the company calls us, hey, I want to make all these changes before the meeting. <laughs> and so, like, we stay up all night Tuesday night. Right. And so next thing you know, it's Wednesday morning. We're in the meeting. We got the work done. We're like I don't even I mean honestly I was totally glazed. I don't <laughs> even remember I don't remember the meeting. I have zero <laughs> recollection of the meeting. But you know, and we had all these senior people there and we go through the analysis and are like, all right, this is the deal we're gonna try to negotiate with Pilkington. So we go home we go to go home and my senior guy sitting here chatting with me, like wants to debrief and start saying, Okay, what are the next things we're gonna do? And we're I think we, we had to connect through like Houston or someplace. We're in Monterey, Mexico for this meeting. And so we're in Houston, and I'm like, I cannot listen to this guy for another 10 minutes. And so I went I went, and, I, and I, to the desk, and I said, hey, do you have any flights into Newark? We were all flying back to LaGuardia. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, it leaves about the same time. So like, we're all boarding our flight. And I'm like, oh, look, I our secretary Jim must McCoy. have booked us into Newark on accident. <laughs> <laughs> so I ditched those guys. And so I go get on this plane to Newark, and I sit down in my seat like this. And next thing I know, the stewardess is shaking me. She's You're like, there. sir, sir. And I'm like, yeah. She's like. We're here. Like I missed the whole flight. <laughs> <What>?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even I
1: had no recollection of even taking that flight. Luckily I sat down and she woke me up in Newark. And oh. like the plane was empty. Yeah. No <laughs> way it was empty? <laughs> it was empty. Like everybody you had already the last gotten off.
0: On. <laughs> Dude, that's a, how so, often did that happen? Like how often did you have I, to I, I pulled an all-nighter like
1: once or twice a month probably. Yeah. No and way, I, really? Yeah, at least for the first two or three years. I I was in that career for about 6 years.
0: How those and meetings, how do those meetings, like, who, who heads that meeting? Is it you guys with all the kind data? Of, well, yeah,
1: us. But, you know, what happens is typically investment banking is usually a pretty high-level thing. So it's usually a CEO or a CFO of a company. Sometimes it may be a board of directors of a company. And then there's always a point person at the company saying, hey, here's what we've asked you to think about, right? Yeah. And then if we have the right kind of relationship, they'll call us and say, hey, we want Morgan Stanley to be our advisor. So it's a relationship business, but it's also you've got to have the intellectual capacity to help companies understand what to do.
0: And like that meeting that you had, it was in Mexico, right?
1: It was in Mexico. So like the CEO was there, the chairman of the board was there, the CFO was there. Then we had like three of our most senior people. And then we were like the Number cruncher, younger, yeah. guy, younger guys, right? Yeah, because I was like in my late twenties, early thirties by this point, right?
0: I'm, I'm looking, I'm like picturing movies and stuff where these guys are sitting in front of each other with suits, and you're up yeah, there I pitching mean, all this data. That's kind of like it was,
1: and in Mexico City, you know, this like chain smoking, right? So I'd come home from these oh. meetings, and my wife would be like, "Dude, you are not allowed in the house. Strip down, put your clothes somewhere else in a bag, and go shower." Like it was like. <laughs> You know, and these guys, too, back in the days, like, we, you know, leading up to these meetings, we had a few trips to Mexico, and so uh, we would, these guys would take us to lunch, and the food in Mexico is incredible, as you know, yeah. and so um, we'd get this great food, then they'd be like, yo, shots of tequila, you know, I don't drink, but these guys would, like, <laughs> hammer tequila shots, and then we'd go back to the office, and I was like, how, how are you guys even functioning? And these are, like, the senior guys of the company, you know, and I was like, wow, this is a crazy place, but I- anyway, Wall Street's a pretty fast-paced Moving place, yeah. Mostly because there's a lot of business cycles, and they don't want to staff up too big, then have to lay people off. So they just stay really thin. So they just overwork everybody to death.
0: I'm like picturing okay. like accountants during tax season, but 12 months out of the year.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like I, you know I I did accounting, and it's like way more intense than accounting. Is it? Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's a
1: little, it's crazy, but you know they pay you a lot of money, and they kind of they have the golden handcuffs on you. Yeah. So anyway, I did that for I did that for about six years, and. I was just never seeing my kids. I was never seeing my wife. Like, I was being a bad dad. I was being a bad parent. And, how, old, how old were you? Uh, so I was about 34 when I left the business. So okay. this is like my late 20s, early 30s. And I had a, I, I came home. Somehow I made it home for dinner one night, which never happened because I always worked till like midnight. And my son was like six at the time. So I had, I had, th- I had three kids. I had an a eight-year-old daughter, six-year-old son, and like a two-year-old son. And my six-year-old son says to me, how, how come you never have dinner with us? It was just like this innocent six-year-old question. And I'm like, well, I, I'm working. And then that very second, I was like, I got to quit. This, I am I'm completely failing the most important things in my life, to chase my own kind of career goals. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, he's it was like his th- dad. That dad's never at yeah, dinner. That was, that's uh, the norm, his yeah. dad. Yeah, well, he's like, never and dinner. he had this really good friend named Andrew. He's like, Andrew's dad's home. Why well, have dinner oh, with Andrew's dad all the time? Man. Andrew's dad was in commercial real estate. <laughs> 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 and I was like, and like Andrew's dad dad's a cool dad dude. <laughs> yeah, he was a good dude. But And also, I was like, what, what am I doing with my life? Like, it's one of those moments where you're like, what am I doing with my life? You know, what really matters to me? And I was like, my wife and kids matter a lot more than this job. Yeah. And so, basically, I kind of put the wheels in motion to quit. We were living in Los Angeles at the time. I transferred with the firm from New York to L.A. And my wife's from here. And I was like, I'm going to move to Salt Lake City. I want my kids to ski every weekend. I want to ski with my kids every weekend and have kind of a much better lifestyle.
0: Have you ever done, like, have you ever had any ties with Salt Lake City or anything? Not really.
1: I went to BYU undergrad. So, like, I had, I kind of, I mean, I skied out there a bunch. I, you know, and. I mean, I kind of knew it, but I didn't really know Salt Lake. I didn't know anybody. Yeah.
0: So that's why that popped in. And my head wife's head.
1: like, I don't want to move to Salt Lake City. We were living in Santa Monica, California. Like, she went to the beach every week with the kids and oh, met her girlfriends. No. And it was like, you know, I mean, California's nice. Yeah. So politically, it's totally this. screwed up. The economics are totally screwed up. But weather's killer, and the, and the place is beautiful.
0: I, I, will, I will agree <laughs> with you on that
1: 100%. So, so anyway, I'm like, now let's move to Salt Lake. She's like, I don't know. So anyway, we moved back to Salt Lake City. And uh, I, I moved into the neighborhood, a neighborhood, the same time another guy moved into a neighborhood who'd gone to business school at, at uh, Wharton. And he was starting this real estate company. And, um, you know, he, interestingly enough, in his career, he'd never had a boss. He'd had a bunch of different small businesses, made his way to business school. And he'd worked for a one year for a big real estate brokerage firm. And he'd sold a bunch of deals to some guys that were basically syndicating real estate. And he's like, I can do that. So he went and found some investors and was starting this company. And then when we started talking about my background in you know capital raising, deal valuations, he's like, I think we could be good partners. And so we ended up negotiating a partnership where the two of us would start this business together with this capital partner. And so back, this is before the Great Recession. This is a long time ago. This is back in 2004. We started basically buying large apartment complexes. And then we, we would tie them up. And then we'd go find the equity capital before we had to close. So we basically go find investors, and then we close the deal with investor money. And back then, um, there was a thing called the 1031 exchange. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was super hot. There were all these people selling like their own, you know, condos or small office buildings that wanted to roll and become a part of a much bigger group. And so we were basically grouping 1031 investors together. Well, in 2008, I mean, all hell broke loose, right? Yeah. I mean, the credit spreads gapped out, you couldn't finance deals. The markets fell apart. Real estate fell 30 or 40% in value. I mean, it was like pandemonium. Probably between like late, it really started cracking in late 2007 were kind of the first signs of it, but it didn't really get really, really nasty until 2008 going into 2009. And everybody knows the history of the Great Recession. It was like a major, major uh, reset for any kind of real estate. Residential got totally hammered. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in the construction business. You, you guys know. probably had a very, very tough time if you were even in business back then. And, um, and so we kind of had this idea. We said, hey, you know what? Let's take all these individual assets we have and let's form what we call a real estate investment trust. And we can roll all these investors into one fund and basically help them diversify to take some of the risk out of their portfolio, out of their individual asset. And uh, there's a very tax-efficient way to do this. And so we spent a year convincing our investors to do it and convincing the lenders, because we had these big commercial loans. These are big deals, so they have big commercial lenders. It's a very complicated to negotiate. I had to convince all these commercial lenders to allow us to roll up these individual deals into this pool. At the same time, there were a lot of companies like ours going out of business, because they had been in the business of raising capital, and they made money syndicating deals, kind of like an investment banker. Right? You, you set up a deal, you get paid to do the deal, you move on to the next deal. Well, there were no new deals being made we on the other hand had started a property management business to manage all of our own assets so we had like some consistent revenue coming in every single month because we were controlling our own destiny most of our competitors had just hired some third party to do that work and so that basically allowed us to keep the lights on during what was probably one of the darkest times in recent history in commercial real estate and so we started going to our competitors who were dying and said hey We'll, ta- we'll, be the, we'll, we'll take over these orphan deals from you because you can't support them and you can't support these investors. We'll pull them into our management platform. And then if they're good enough, we'll roll them into our real estate investment trust. And if it works out, we'll pay you guys something along the way.
0: What's an orphan deal?
1: So, so think, of a, think of somebody who maybe bought 15 apartment complexes, big okay. ones, between 2004 and 2007 but they didn't control the management. They had third parties doing everything. So it was a small team buying deals, syndicating, and making money every time they did put a deal together. Yeah. There was no new money to put deals together. So they couldn't keep the lights on. Oh, but they okay. still had to deal with all these deals that they syndicated because every one of those deals had up to 35 individual investors. So you had hundreds of investors like, what are you, what are, what are you doing with my deal? Yeah, And so this will kind of give you a scale of what happened. We, we managed about 5,000 apartment units when, when the recession hit. We ended up taking over probably six or seven competitors uh, and ended up managing about 30,000 apartment units by 2010.
0: That's awesome.
1: So we were like kind of folding everybody under our umbrella. And really we were helping these sponsors who were going bankrupt and out of business because we were giving them some money and some some piece of the fees to kind of keep their own lights on. And then we said, hey, now that we have this vehicle – let's go through this m- pool of assets we manage and let's cherry pick all the best assets and see if those investors want to roll into the REIT.
0: Did so, you, did you already have this in place managing assets before? We were, man- yeah, we started,
1: yeah, that's a great question. We started managing assets in 2005.
0: That was a good, good thing. And honestly,
1: I didn't want to do it. I was like, cause there's a lot of manpower involved. If you yeah. think about it, right, you got, you got all the maintenance people, you got the leasing people, you got managers, you got this whole infrastructure of people you have to build. I mean, we got up to almost like 1,000 employees. It was a lot of people we were managing. And my partner's like, I really think we should do this because we'll control our destiny.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, we're not relying on somebody else to set the rent policies uh, for our tenants. We're not relying on somebody to cut costs. We can do it ourselves. And if we hadn't done that move, and I, I was against it my partner was for it, and yeah. he finally talked me into it, that was, the, that was one of the single greatest moves we made as a company, right? And I would have had that wrong, honestly. Had
0: you not have made that move, do you think you'd have ever seen you, That wouldn't even have been a thought in your mind in 2008.
1: Well, we wouldn't have had the, we wouldn't have had the platform to, yeah. pull, to pull it off. Right. You had to have the platform to pull yeah. it off. So we got lucky. Um, and I thought 2008 and nine was going to kill us because it killed so many people. Uh, it, it, but it ended up being the greatest thing that ever happened to our company. But that's when it was happening, it felt like we were going to die. <laughs>
0: that's,
1: that's <laughs> you awesome. know, we we're like having to cut staff or like, you know, my wife's like, Hey, this check just bounced. I'm like, Oh yeah. I forgot to tell you, I cut my salary for the third time. Like, you know, we kept taking oh, less and less yeah. money, and I was like, oh, but we have some money over here. You know, it was like one of these things. It was just like this incredible, you know. Needless to say, we wouldn't have been auto racing back in 2008 and 2009, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so. That would have been but, cut out. But what happened, this is kind of funny, but what happened is as we started putting this REIT together, more and more investors wanted in. And so by the time we hit 2011, you know, things were starting to look a little better. Not a lot better because it was a pretty slow, long recovery. But the worst month, the worst quarter was the second quarter of 2010. That's when rents bottomed out. And by the third quarter of 2010, we started having positive rent growth across the entire portfolio.
0: Second quarter lowest.
1: Second quarter was lowest. Third quarter was started. There was just, you could just see, you you could just see the sun. There was a change in the graph. You couldn't see the sun, but you could see the light on the horizon, right? Yeah. And basically from 2010, really through today, we've had positive rent growth. I mean, we didn't, we didn't even have negative rent growth during the pandemic. And so, but what happened is then at that point, we we started creating, we're like, hey, this might be a real business. And so, you know, the first closing, I think the REIT was maybe 150 million in value. Um, You know, today we're about two and a half billion dollars in size. So it's like, it's like ballooned over a long period of time. Now it's been, you know, I tell people who meet me, they're like, hey, I want to get in real estate, you know, and and you guys are very successful. I'm like, you got to understand about real estate; it's a slow game. I know a lot of young, very successful tech guys that are young and rich. I don't know many young, rich real estate guys.
0: No, how long have you been doing that?
1: I mean, I've been in, we've been in the business twenty years. So it's are a, a, a slow twenty year
0: overnight success. Yeah, yeah that's a slow
1: <laughs> compounding business. Real estate is a great long term business, but you, yeah. it's a game of patience, right? You got to keep reinvesting every year, and over time it compounds. And you have cycles, like, and we're in a cycle right now. Like what I, does I tell c- p- What does
0: this cycle look like?
1: I, man, I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, values are down across yeah.
0: the board. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I tell people there are, two, there are two really great ways to turn a big pile of money into a small pile of money. One of them is racing cars, okay, as you know, I'm sure. The other one is investing. That's,
0: that's a big pile of money into a, a small
1: pile. Uh, the other one is investing in real estate right before interest rates go up. Mm-hmm. Right. So what are
0: you looking at right now with the market and what's going on? What is you, What are you guys yeah. trying, to, trying to foresee? Or so, think about? so,
1: you know, luckily for us, because we're in housing with all this inflation, we've had incredible rent growth. Yeah. So our rent growth has mostly offset value declines, not t- entirely. We've seen values decline, but they've you know, if, if values decline 30 percent or 20 percent, you know, we've 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 seen like, you know, 50 to 70 percent of that offset by just rent growth. Okay. Which has been incredible. But that won't go forever. Yeah. Right?
0: What type of properties are these?
1: These are um, these are very large, I would call them institutional-grade apartment communities. Okay. So they would be like, I don't know how familiar you are with Sugar House, but we own two really large new complexes in Sugar House. They're like kind of high, mid-rises. Multifamily like, stuff? Multifamily, like okay. six stories, you know, pools, elevator buildings, kind of pretty high-end stuff is what we have. And, you know, we own in a lot of markets. We're in... Uh, We're in South Florida, we're in Tampa and St. Pete, we're in Nashville and Atlanta and Charlotte and Raleigh, we're in Boston, we're in Dallas, we're in, um, you know, we're in Salt Lake City, we're in Portland, Oregon, we're in a bunch of different places. Portland, of course, is its own animal with what's been happening in Portland, but... um, our view is we go to markets where there's a lot of job growth. Actually, Salt Lake City is probably our smallest market we do business in. Is it? Um, most of the other markets are bigger. Have where's,
0: where's the most growth right now, you feel? Like? Uh, I mean,
1: Salt Lake has had incredible growth. Yeah. So Salt Lake's been a great place to be investing, but it's just a smaller town.
0: Oh, yeah. Right, all together. Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, Nashville's been hot. Charlotte's been great. Florida's been incredible because so many people are leaving uh, the Northeast and moving yeah. to Florida. I've never seen anything like what we've seen in Florida. I mean, Florida's been just... An incredible economic growth engine, but um, but anyway, yeah. So our journey's had all these ups and downs, and I think we're in another down cycle right now. So what I'm telling our team is, every cycle like this creates opportunity. Yeah. And so you know, our we do two two or three main things in our business. One of our main lines of business is we own stabilized properties. We rent to people, right, and we try to upgrade them, and that's probably 75 to 80 percent of our business. The other part of the business we, we're in is we actually lend money to other real estate developers. Okay. So if you're going to, let's say you're going to build a 300-unit um, apartment complex and yeah. it's, it's going to cost you $80 million to build it. And so, and, you, and you've gone out and raised $20 million of equity from all your buddies at the country club uh, or some institutional investors or some pension funds. And, and then you've got a lender who's willing to give you, historically, they'd give you like 70% of the cost. So they'd give you $55 million. You, and then you'd go raise the rest. You'd go raise $25 million and you'd be done, and you'd have the deal done. Today's environment, lenders have gotten really, really tight with their capital, mostly because uh, when interest rates started going up so much, lenders are like, crap, we're going to be short on capital, and so we, we need to pull back. And so they stopped doing a lot of new loans for commercial real estate because they knew there were going to be some value problems. And they, so they're only really doing loans if somebody's paying off a loan. Okay. And now you've had this banking crisis the last few weeks with Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank, Signature Bank, a couple of these banks failing. First Republic hasn't failed, but it's still uh, you know, tough times. All these regional banks are like, crap, we can't be doing new loans right now. Yeah. I mean, because what if we have a run on the bank? What if all these depositors want their money back? We can't be putting money in a deal that we're not going to get paid back for four or five years, right? Because these are, these are long cons- long-tail construction projects. They're usually 30 months or so, 36 months to build another year to lease it up and stabilize it so the lender could be in there for four years. And so what's happened is if you want a to loan today, yeah. instead of getting 70% loan to value, you might be getting 45 or 50% for the lenders who are willing to do it. And that universe has gone, has shrunk. And so what's happened to us is that before we would go out and we'd, we'd say to you, hey, we'll give you some, we'll give you some preferred equity, L- like a little mezzanine piece between your equity and the first mortgage debt. And historically, we'd get paid 11 12% to do that now because the lenders have pulled back so much the d- developers are more desperate for the capital so now we're saying we'll give you we'll give you the capital but you know what now it's 15 16% 17% <laughs> <17 percent. laughs> and I we've see. been putting money to work and so nope. for us it's a huge opportunity to take our investor capital and right we have thousands of investors so if you think of us as a mutual fund we have all yeah. these investors they want us to create return and so we're saying hey can we take that money and invest it in a very you know complicated environment because every cycle, there's a bull market somewhere. Yep. There's a bear market for most of the market, but there's some pieces that you can always make money in. And the other thing is, too, like, we do some development. It's very hard to get development out of the ground, but most people are stopping developments right now. That means if you can start a development right now, when it hits the market, it won't have much competition when it's leasing up. Mm. There's a lot of deals. Every, mar- every city we go in, there's cranes everywhere. You yes. see them. They're all over oh Salt yeah, Lake. Yeah. These are deals that were started a couple years ago. Yes. These things are going to finish, and then you won't see cranes for a while. Other than other than big firms that have a lot of capital that are doing deals, yeah. right? I mean, and that's kind of what's happening. And I mean, you're probably seeing it in your own business. Yeah, right?
0: my my business, DKA Construction. That's what we we've kind of pivoted towards multifamily. Yeah. So we do. We're a subcontractor. We do rough rough carpentry framing. Oh, you do? Yeah, okay. Metal, okay. yeah, metal yeah okay. metal stud framing, drywall. Okay. So yeah. yeah, we do quite a bit of multifamily. Yeah. So so like like it's the, hot right now.
1: It's hot right now. But what's happening is the front end is not hot. So here's, mm. a, per- here's Everything a perfect example. It takes time to develop. Here's a perfect example. So w- y- you can kind of guess what kind of contractors we work with here because we yeah. got to have the lenders on our deals want guys that are big, yep. have bonding capacity. So you're talking about the big Ds, the Laytons, the Oaklands. Those are the kind of contractors that the lenders want on the size of projects we're doing. The, uh, s- eight months ago, a year ago, they were like, sorry, we got no room in our books. Well, guess what? They're all calling now, those kind of firms, saying, what do you have? What do you have? What do you have? Because what's happened is they're not starting new projects.
0: Yeah.
1: All their deals are falling apart. So they've got all these projects to finish. So the finish guys are really busy. The guys doing punch-outs and finish are still super busy. The concrete
0: guys, the framers. It's going to start falling off. It's
1: getting really slow. I mean, you look at the price of lumber. I haven't seen it this low in a long time.
0: Yeah, it started coming back down again, thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so, you know, that's kind of a sign that, that the, as development stops, all that front-end stuff will stop. But because it's a two-year process, it takes yeah. a while. This yeah. stuff doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, yeah. The,
0: the, the, the idea comes up, then they get it all through planning and everything, and it, it takes time through bidding, everything. Oh, for sure. You know, all these projects that we get started on, had, that, that was a seed that was growing from two years ago. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about, is there's no more seeds right now.
1: Right, right. If a Rimrock's going to hire you guys, yep. you're like, hey, we're full, full, full. All of a sudden, you're like, okay. There's no new projects coming, right? And so all these all these big firms that that have historically been kind of our, our G C you know our consultants basically to, to find all the right subs to do these deals are now saying, hey, what do you guys have? Like we want to work, we want to work together. We're like, well, six months ago you didn't
0: want our business, right? Because you were too busy. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's so the same with me with suppliers and stuff like that it's as ex- well. Yeah, exactly, exactly the same thing. But
1: you know, costs have gone up a lot and inflation's very sticky. Yeah. You know, I think all of us guys that do some development are hoping costs will come down, but I don't know if they're going to come down that much. I think they're just going to be really sticky. They go up fast and then they're kind of sticky to come they're down. Some of the commodity down. stuff like lumber, yeah, uh, concrete, some of that stuff can move around, but you know, labor's not going to move much. Yeah. How are you going to take guys that work for you that are making 40 bucks an hour and say I can only pay 25 bucks an hour? Gotta drop
0: you down. The, o- the only way that that works is if it's if if our our uh, we're subbed out too. If we sub the sub. Then they get in that same situation where we need work.
1: Right, right. And, and this are you is willing to bid we'll it? Do it for? Right. And are you willing to yep. bid it for cheaper?
0: Then, then we can get it back down. But y- exactly. Yeah. Like but it's risky th- though.
1: You take one of those subs, and the guy's, you know, kind of just trying to keep the lights on. Yep. All of a sudden, he goes BK on you halfway through the job. Then you got to find somebody else. You have a cost overrun. And
0: yeah, it is. There's
1: all this liability in the tree. It's ve- it's a very complicated business. So we do some development. It's not our primary business. Our primary is really owning and managing. Um, but. You know we're kind of looking at everything across the thing. So I, I think there are opportunities in development today because it's really hard to do anything that's hard to do. Yeah. Anytime you have to get your boots in the mud, there's opportunity. When it's easy, everybody's doing it, and 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 the excess returns disappear. Is is a lot less.
0: Yeah. So tell so if I was a, a if I was a developer, real estate developer, then I would come to you if you I'm would, looking to help. You you would come capital. to me and
1: say, hey, you know what? My lender just went from 70% leverage to 50%, and I have I don't know what to do for the 20%. Okay. Would you guys give me the extra 20%? I still got my equity. My guys still want to do this deal because it's the best location in town and we're going to do it. Yeah. And we think for the next 20 years it's going to be a great project for us. And we'd be like, sure. It just costs you more now today yeah. from us than it would have a year ago. That's all.
0: Okay. And then you also can manage the properties and stuff like that as well. Oh, yeah.
1: We do. We do. We, we, we do. So, you know, a lot of bigger developers we work with have their own in house management and they do their own lease up. But we're here for them if they need help. Right, and we've had some developers come to us and say, "Hey, we want you guys to do the lease up because you guys are very good at how you manage properties." And um, you know, we we do things differently than a lot of people. Like we're we're a pretty sizable company, but we're very very flat at the top, and we have a culture that that we all argue with each other all the time. But <laughs> right? there's no like hierarchy, <laughs> like the boss says X yeah. and then everybody just does it. Yeah. We're, we're not like that. Like everybody argues with me, I argue with my part. We all argue with each other because we end up with better results if we're willing to put our egos aside. And we can fight it out and figure out what the right answers are. And So here's something sort of unique. We have gone away from having leasing agents in multifamily, which sounds crazy, okay? But we said millennials, who are our tenants, typically 20 to 35-year-olds, are mo- typically our tenants because they're kind of still in that part of their lives. Yeah. They, uh, they don't even like salespeople. And so we have just now opened up our properties. We have like a property concierge. So you walk in our property and you, you, and you say, hey, what's available? And the concierge say, "Here's a map, or here's a key fob to let you in the building, or here's a map if it's more spread out." And the and the units that are vacant are open. Go take a look at them. And then we just let the we just let the prospects go look at them. That does two sp- that does two things. Often when there's a lot of people trying to look at apartments on busy times, there's only one or two leasing agents. So then the people are waiting for somebody to give somebody a tour and come back. Yeah. And drives people insane, by the way. So they you know they're like, "Screw you! I'm going to go to the next deal over." Um, but the other thing it does. Is it, is it people now tour by themselves. They're much more comfortable, like if they're with their girlfriend or yeah. their spouse or whatever or their boyfriend, they can, they can talk more openly about what they want. And what we've seen is that the closing ratios have gone up. People actually are more apt to lease if they can spend as much time as they want. They're not being rushed through some tour. We had, we had, a, we had a woman call us kind of at, right after we started doing this. She said, I leased here. I wasn't sure if I'd fit in the tub. I crawled in the tub <laughs> to make sure I liked and I was comfortable. And because I did that, at least I never could have done that at any other property because I would have been too embarrassed with a yeah. leasing agent. Just that. little tiny things. And so the other thing we did is we said, we're going to be open from 8 to 8 every day. Except for Sunday, I think we're open 10 to 6 on Sundays. Because we want to be open Later. when millennials want to tour. Yeah. Historically, our industry has been open from 9 to 5. Do you know why? Why is that? That's, that's when that's the property that. manager wants to show up and work.
0: That's when he wants to be there and be gone. <laughs> And so
1: it took some growing pains for our staff yeah. to get used to the hours. Um, and also, imagine how, many, imagine how many Amazon packages show up every day at a 400-unit apartment complex or a 300-unit apartment complex. I mean, it's a massive thing, right? That would be. And the whole industry, nobody's really figured out how to deal with packages. And we're like, hey, we're open. Our office will become now the local FedEx, UPS drop-off and pickup facility because we're always open. Yeah. You come home from work, you come to the office, you get you your come packages. Come grab your stuff, say you know hi. What? That yeah. shirt doesn't fit you. You want to send it back? Put it on your Amazon thing. Give it back to us. We'll give it to UPS for you. That's good. That's good. I don't so know about
0: you, but when a salesman comes to me and the, he, he starts, there's a switch that just, yeah, just like I'm turned off. I'm like, no. Totally. Yeah. I, so it, I stopped listening completely, and I'm just, I'm totally out of it.
1: So, so funny enough, because we've had all this success, all these other apartment people keep sending their people through a the tour. They're like, you can see what, you can see them coming. You can see them coming from a mile away. You're like, oh, that person's not a tenant. They, they, they're another apartment owner. They're like, ah, oh, can we see, you know, they're, and they're touring. They're trying to figure it out. And a few firms have tried to roll it out, but it's been, it's been hard because they're, they're kind of missing some of the core elements of, of how you provide high-touch yeah. service to people, right? It's about, it's about a concierge model. It's about really giving people what they want. And so, you know, we rolled that out a month before COVID hit. So in COVID, Which most, works, yeah. most people closed their doors because they didn't know how to lease because nobody wanted to have interaction. Go no face-to-face. And yeah. we're like, hey, we're open. Come on in. You don't have to get close. There's the tour. Our closing ratios, which probably averaged like 50%, were like 95% for the first three or four months of COVID. And, you know, we stayed full. And, you know, we didn't have any real issues with with the pandemic early on. You know, later on, everybody did great because everybody wanted more space. Apartments have just been this incredible asset class. But now it's tough. I mean, the Fed is darned and determined to force a recession on our country. And uh, they're going to do it. And they're not going to give up until they feel like they've killed inflation. And they need to kill inflation. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that. I think they've gone way too hard, way too fast. And a lot of things are going to break. Obviously, when you have bank failures happening, things are already breaking.
0: What do you think it looks like over the next couple of years?
1: I think, uh, I think we're going to have a mild recession this year. I think interest rates will drop. They're not going to go back to where they were. Yeah. That was super so that, so the, the era of you know, financing your 30-year mortgage at 3%, that probably doesn't exist. But it's probably not going to be six or seven percent either. Yeah. We're probably going to sell. Going to flat out a
0: five or b- something. four f-
1: before four or five ish range, and so values have to reset. All of us that own homes that think are, we're really cool because our home values have gone up, they're <laughs> going to go down. We all have to just accept that. Yeah, they're going to go down, or at least they're going to flatline for a long time. Because if you look at, it, there's a chart that I look at on a regular basis, and it's the it's the cost of owning a home relative to renting an apartment, and rents. For us, when the cost of owning a home is significantly higher, yeah. two things have to happen. Either the home prices fall or rents go up or both. And so I'm always watching that because it matters in my business. And for a long time, you know, you'll, 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 have, you'll go on either side of equilibrium. Right now, it's been the biggest spread I've ever seen in my career because it's so expensive to buy a house because mortgage rates are so high. And house prices have not come down very much, maybe 5% but they're up like 40%, right? Yeah. So they need to come down 30% to get back to a place where they're the same as apartment rent. So what that tells me is we're probably going to have pricing power in the apartment world for some time to come.
0: What is that chart called?
1: Uh, I mean, it's just a relative chart. I'll send it I'll send it yeah. to you after the interview. It's, ba- it's basically, it, they call it owner equivalent rent. Basically, if you own a property versus the actual rent level on a nationwide basis, and yeah. you kind of see it. There, there's a bunch of different analysts that publish it every month. I and it's one of those things the Fed looks at because they're like, dang, I mean, it's, you know, things are expensive. And, and the other thing is, too, the Fed has, has been using rents as part of their inflation trajectory. Yeah. And a year ago, I'm like, I saw what our rent growth was in our, across our entire portfolio. We have like 15,000 units, so we're, and we're all across all these different markets. So I'm like, inflation's going to be really high. But what happens is it lags. The data lags. They're looking at historical data. Well now, rent growth has kind of come back down to like two and a half to three percent, kind of in the Fed's target, but the Fed is still seeing six, seven percent rent growth because it lags, and so yeah. they're still like keeping the keeping the brakes on the economy mm. on lag data. And I'm like, guys, it's already slowed down. So by the time it finally hits, it's we're going to roll into a re- we're going to roll into a recession. On oh, the
0: I get it. I get
1: it. It's tricky, right? It's yeah. And it's
0: hard. And if you're the if you're
1: the Fed chairman, I mean, what's your job, right? Your job is to, like, not let inflation run away and create the 70s stagflation we had. Because yeah. that was a bad decade. <laughs> we don't need a bad decade. <laughs> I'd have to look that one up. <laughs> we have. But, you know, the problem is we have a lot of debt in our country. Yep. And we can't really service the debt at 6 or 7% interest rates. So interest rates probably will be lower for longer, but it just may take us longer to get there. Everything is more painful and takes longer, and I'm not a very patient person. And for me to have to sit kind of on the sidelines and wait for this to happen is really, really frustrating. <laughs> you've you've, hu- you've made hard.
0: really good decisions in some key times.
1: Yeah, we've made a lot of good decisions, and we've had a lot of luck. Yeah, we've had so a lot it of helps luck. to have luck, for sure. You've got to have luck. But, you know, if you're not positioned right, it, good luck doesn't help you.
0: Yeah. Are you still at the same partner? Yeah, yeah, oh, we've, we've, been, we've, been,
1: we've, we've, been, we've been partners now for almost 20 years. And what yeah. is the business? It's called Cottonwood Communities. Cottonwood Communities. Cottonwood Communities. Mm-hmm. Cottonwood Residential. We have kind of two different brands. Residential is our management brand, and Communities is our fund. Okay, and that's and uh, he that's he's the chairman years. and uh, executive chairman. I'm the CEO, and we've kind of held those same roles forever. We're basically like co CEOs yeah. of the business, and we've, and and you know our our corporate culture has been, you don't get your f- feelings hurt, and you put everything on the table, and we talk openly about it. And people who are new to our company will show up in a meeting, and the two of us will be like taking two different sides of an argument they might be like what the crap's happening here right but then when everybody else starts jumping in and fighting with us about it then they realize oh this is the culture these guys have created and you know people come to our company and they stay i mean our newest our new two newest members on our executive committee there's like 12 of us that are like the most senior people joined us six years ago the two newest people before then joined us 10 years ago i mean so we have a ton of stability in the team yeah and the investment returns have been strong. But, you know, we're in a tough environment right now. The stock price has been coming down for six months. And, uh, you know, we, we publish a stock price every month and people can buy in or out. And it, it might go down a little bit more before it starts turning around. I think we're nearing the bottom because it feels to me like we're, you know, commercial real estate's been in a recession for six or eight months already. Yeah. Right. The rest of the cu- country hasn't, but our industry has. It feels to me like we're almost kind of beginning to find the bottom of a new cycle.
0: You kind of see those lags with different things, like whether it's the m- m- building material or like it it seems like even in the building material there was specific material that lagged before others. Absolutely. And then like the wood has come down but the metal's still up. It's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you know the metal's gonna come down if the demand slows down, right? Yep. So it's
0: it's happening, it just it just takes time. So You said you said something about you published the rates. And people can come in or come out if they want. Yeah, so Is that other investors joining and in, in to the pool?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, we, you know, we have a few thousand investors that are in. And, and um, in our company, uh, investors who want to buy can buy once a month, but they can also sell their stock at whatever the current stock price is once a month. The, the Securities and Exchange Commission has some rules on how these work to not be deemed a publicly traded company where you actually have to list on the exchange and trade every day. And uh, those rules are that we can buy back basically 20% of the stock every year, right? And yeah. so when people don't have faith, they start selling the stock or they're like, dang, I can take the money and go buy treasuries right now at 5% and just park it, right? And a lot of people are parking money in treasuries, basically. It's not under your mattress, yeah. but it's, it's the opposite because now rates are so high. I mean, for the last 10 years, you couldn't make any money buying, you know, buying CDs or buying treasury bonds, but now you can. So people are saying, hey, I've, I've made a lot of money in real estate. It's run up a ton. It's come back a little bit. But, you know, from where it was, all these people are way up. They're saying, let's take some chips off the table, put it in treasuries. I get that. I think some people are missing on the fact that we're getting ready to start a new cycle, and there's all these opportunities where we're investing capital that are going to make more money going forward. Can you explain why it's better right now to put into treasuries? I don't think it's better. I just think I can understand somebody who wants to do that. Is it safer? It's safe. Okay. As long as you think the U.S. government's not going to default, which the U.S. government defaults, the whole globe is blowing up, right? There's all sorts of global financial crisis problems. So it's are. a safe situation to be it's, in right now. It's probably the safest place you could be. Also, a lot of people are pulling deposits out of lenders because they're worried about more bank failures. And they're saying, well, I was insured up to $250,000 per account, right? So if you're a retiree and you've worked really hard your whole life and you have a $2.5 million you know, investment account and you had a few accounts with some banks that were paying you some interest and you're like, man, what if my bank fails? I don't want to lose my money. Yeah. So, I'll just take that money out and I'm going to go buy U.S. Treasuries. Okay. Because, I, you know, the last the lender of last resort basically is the U.S. government. So, yeah. if the U.S. government fails, then every, everybody's toast. No so, it doesn't b- it's even no matter, right? It. Right. Yeah. Why yeah. even have an investment yeah. account? That makes sense. <laughs> so, makes so sense. I think that's what's been happening and that's why banks have been failing. And, and in this new modern age, I mean, you can pick up your iPhone, go on your bank, and transfer your money out in five seconds. Yeah. It's not like you got to go line up like back in the 30s and ask for it. You know, it's not. You know, you're not sitting at the bank waiting for them to give you a, a, a pocket full of cash, yep, right? Yep. It's just like a electronic transfer, and it's gone. So it's been a crazy, crazy time in the markets. There will be more bank failures. There's going to be some pain. It's not 23 it, is going to be kind of ugly. Yeah. 24 won't feel great, but it'll probably be the seeds of a new recovery. And 25, 26 are probably pretty good years.
0: Start seeing some some uh, incline in that graph. Yeah, it it's back just up. you know.
1: When you have to think about 2025, you're like, dang, that's two years from now. It goes like, so
0: fast, though.
1: In hindsight, it does. It but when you're waiting so on fast. it, I, to me, it doesn't feel happening Yeah, like, it's like
0: with me and work and everything, it's. It, I swear it was just January. And I'm like, what happened?
1: That's true. That does happen. July
0: will be here before I know it, and then I'm going to be rolling into the getting ready for 2024. We'll all be sandbagging
1: here in the next few weeks as <laughs> <since> it finally <laughs> warms up. <laughs> I was thinking about like start, <laughs> like
0: uh, a month ago. I was like, I'm going to start filling a ton of sandbags <laughs> and putting them at my shop and putting them for sale.
1: Yeah, <laughs> honestly, I have uh, I live on the Big Cottonwood Creek, and um, it hasn't really risen much yet. But the next couple weeks, it's going to start coming. I see. Yeah, th- so we're watching it every day, deciding when we need to start sandbagging.
0: I seen uh, like Utah Lake that I believe was a far north uh, south side the marina was dry and now they got boats in it
1: oh it's really yeah. wow that yeah. fast yep yeah so I
0: thought that was crazy
1: yeah that's crazy. that is crazy um
0: one other question I wanted to talk to you about that yeah. was your investors yeah what, what investors are you looking for are you looking for investors um, is there a so specific type you look for yeah
1: it's 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 a great question so we basically raise capital through an uh, Uh, a network of independent broker dealers. Okay. And so mostly financial advisors who have other products like ours on their platform will say, hey, I really think, I think my clients, 10 of my, 10 of my 20 clients would really benefit from being in multifamily as a sector. But there's also guys like me that have industrial properties or guys that have other types of commercial properties or guys that do credit funds. And so, you know, our customer really is the financial advisor we get to know the financial advisors and they say, hey, which of our clients do we think would benefit from being in your fund? And typically a client might have like, you know, 60% of their money in public equities, 40% in bonds. And an advisor might say, hey, you know what, we can probably increase total returns on your portfolio and maybe decrease some of the volatility if we say instead of being 100% invested in publicly traded stuff, maybe let's take a 10% sleeve and be in some private investments like real estate. Or like hedge funds or some things like that, right? And so the financial advisors we work with really are the ones that are allocating their clients' capital to us. So we don't spend a ton of time one on one with the investors. We spend yep. more time interfacing with the financial so like advisors.
0: A, a single investor that is looking and has money. Yeah,
1: a single investor who's looking at money basically Go would get an would, advisor. We, we we would we if they set, came to we have people that come to us and say, Hey, I want to put a hundred thousand dollars in the fund. Yeah. And so then I would say, All right, let me put you together with an advisor who works for one of the fifty firms that are licensed to work with us. So this, this stuff is all very regulated and licensed. And, and, and we say, and the reason we want you to have an advisor because I don't know if this is 100% of your net worth you're trying to put with me, right? If it is, yeah. I don't want to take your money. Yeah. If it's, but if it's 5% of your net worth, we can talk about it. And, and your advisor will help you figure that out, right? And so my job really is to create returns for the pool of assets we have and make sure we make money for all the investors. I don't want to be in the business of trying to help understand what my client's needs are, what the in actual investor's needs are. I think that's really their advisor's position. And, um, and the advisors are, are trained to make sure they understand what risk is and how, how people can allocate funds. And so, you know, it's, it's, we're, like, we're kind of one step removed, but we're not. At the end of the day, we're working for the investors, and, and we want them to have faith in how we can make them money. And we've made people a lot of money over a long period of time, mostly because we're in the right place at the right time, right? Yep. Apartments has been an incredible sector for the last 20 years. Now, we believe it's still going to be very strong for the next decade. Yeah. But who knows the future, right? I can't, I can't tell you for sure. Other than, The only thing I can tell you is we see really interesting opportunities right now. And now is the time to be investing.
0: I like when you said a long time, like you know, yeah. this doesn't happen overnight, for sure. This, this, this is, is not, a long this game. This is not this, this is, 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 not is not a short a, game. This yeah, is you're not going to put
1: your money in and try to double it in a year. This yeah. is you put your money in and you want to make a eight to ten percent return every single year. Safe, consistent. And if and if you do that for a decade, you know your account looks really good. Do you work with a lot of the same investors? Uh, it's a lot of the same people. I mean we uh, we probably have fifty or sixty different broker dealer firms that are that have us on their platform. Yeah. That then. Their their investors can basically access us as an investment.
0: Because I was going to put you on the spot and be like, do you have an investor that you like? <laughs> oh, I mean, I, <laughs> do you, I, you have one that? Pops I mean, I can't, I, I can't,
1: I can't really. I mean, honestly, um, we have so many investors. Yeah. You know, we kind of we kind of view our jobs. We're the fiduciaries. Our job is to figure out how to make as much total return in as safe of a manner as we can for all of them together right? Nobody is treated better than anybody else. Everybody's on the exact same playing field. And me and, me and my co-founder are, are two of the largest shareholders. Our shares are exactly the same as anybody who invests with us, you know? We're treated the same way. Yeah. So it, it kind of keeps us aligned with all of our with all of our investors, if that makes sense. Kay.
0: I've got another question, too. Yeah. That uh, why, why is it that... Um, I thought anything commercial in real estate was like more than five doors. So yeah. why is it that a multifamily is still residential?
1: You know, so... Kind of depends how you define it. We would we would define anything we own as commercial real estate. Okay, and I I would say the simplest way to think about residential versus commercial is how it's financed. So, um, single family residents and up to four units basically are financed as single family. Freddie and Fannie have different rules for that. Anything that's five units or bigger, they throw into their multifamily bucket. Uh, but in reality, a five-unit deal, in my view, is still pretty residential.
0: Yeah,
1: A mom and pop owner can own a five-unit deal. A mom and pop owner can own a 50-unit deal, but over 50 units, it starts getting hard, right? Because you need staff, you need maintenance Managing people, you need management everything. stuff. You, it's, it becomes much more professionalized. You know, we typically won't do anything that's less than like 200 units because there's a scale <laughs> issue for us. And mm-hmm. Financing uh, becomes a lot more attractive when you get 200 units or better. And, and so it's financed. If Freddie and Fannie are still big lenders to big multifamily, but the, the pricing, the terms, the leverage, everything's totally different than what you would see in normal residential. Normal residential, the leverage is much, much higher. Okay. So if you're buying a house, you can still get 80% leverage from Fannie.
0: Yes.
1: Maybe even 90% under some of their programs. Right now, Fannie, to us, they'll say, hey, how much income does a property make? You know, we'll give you up to 70%, but only if the income covers it. And if rates are high and the interest payments are high on the loan, the income probably won't cover 70% leverage. So that the agency might say, really, it's going to price out at 62%. And is that okay for you? So that's why it kind of ends in the commercial realm, because the lenders, the brokers, the, everything about it, they're There's all kind of comer- commercial guys. They're much more complex yeah. deals, if you will.
0: I just didn't know why they were still calling them residential for the 30 units or the, or above or you know what I Yeah,
1: mean? I mean it's a, you know, it's it's a bit of a hybrid because we are renting to people, right? We're providing yeah. housing. Yes. And so housing has this whole spectrum, but people who are in the business would consider anything, you know, 100 to 200 units and above really on the commercial side because you usually finance it with institutions. Well, oftentimes the investors are institutional. Even though our investors are retail, mom and pop investors. Yeah. You know, we're viewed as an institutional investor when we're buying because we're pooling all these assets together. And then going out and buying, right? I don't know if that answers your question, really.
0: Kind yes. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, yes. It's, it's complex. <laughs> it's complex. <laughs> Sorry. I'll, I'll try. It doesn't give me the quick answer. So when ask, people ask me, you know what I mean? And I'm like, I do commercial. I, I, I stick to commercial. Yeah. Well, I kind of do, you know, we do multifamily. So I guess we do do residential. So, yeah, my I mean, it's still going to stay that yeah, way. It's still commercial.
1: Act. But if you're, if, you're, if you're working on a project and Big D has hired you guys yep. on a 100 unit project, that's a commercial project.
0: Okay.
1: Right. If you're building a home for one of your best friend's parents, well, that's clearly okay. residential, right? And the subs are very different. Like, the subs that work on our complexes are not the same subs who are also banging out houses for ivory. They're not the same you're guys. you are not getting the same price.
0: Yeah. Not it's at not at the all.
1: same guys, it's not the same kind of quality work you know, it's kind of a different animal
0: and that's kind of where we sit is in that 50 to or the 30 to 100 unit is kind of where we're at Yeah. so that's but that's i was looking for a separate a different type of answer <laughs> to give people when they <laughs> ask me but there's not a clear I'm answer. Keep the same answer it's really
1: about how it's financed okay that's the easiest way to if 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 freddie and fanny put it in their commercial bucket it's commercial okay which is pretty much anything large yeah all the small stuff is residential that's the easiest way to tell people it's not a, it's not entirely accurate but it's pretty close what,
0: what has been one of the worst things that's happened to you? Career-wise? Yeah. Business-wise? Yeah. I mean, you know, I would say... Um, it couldn't have been all fun and games.
1: No, I mean, we've had some really bad things happen. So, for example, um, just two years, just last, I guess, two summers ago, we were, we were building a project in Mill Creek called Richmond Apartments uh, in Salt Lake City. And um, 5 o'clock on a super hot 105 degree June day um, one of the subcontractors caught the building on fire and it and it was at the most vulnerable stage it was fully framed uh, and you know basically electrical contractors were in there starting to starting to wire for electrical and you know the cause of the fire was actually never fully determined by uh, uh, by the bureau that kind of investigates all these big yeah. fires but basically it burned it burned a 250 unit deal to the ground during construction, and so say that's that incredibly say that painful. Again, say that again. <laughs> so,
0: w- what price?
1: So, that it was probably 30 or 40 million dollars of damage
0: ish. Uh,
1: so, not only did it torch, uh, you know, four stories of framing, uh, it was so hot the heat that it basically compromised the post-tension cabling and the concrete mm. deck that it was built on top of. So that tells you kind of... Yeah. So that, so this is a two-level parking deck with four levels of stick frame above it, this, this particular project. It also completely damaged surrounding buildings, and all those tenants had to leave. And, um, you know, this is one of the first major new projects in the new downtown revitalization of Mill Creek. So for Mill Creek City and the mayor, yeah. it was a real bummer. And... Um, you know, it was a raging, raging inferno. I mean, it was like a five alarm fire. That was very difficult to manage through, right? Uh, because you've got multiple insurance policies, you've got a lender you've got to deal with, you've got investors who are like wondering what's happening to the capital. Huge downtime. Uh, and on. that deal basically is now, you know, it's, it's, it's on its way to probably being done in a year or so that costs us a year. Well, so a year, which is in money. a complicated environment, when prices are going up on everything, yes. makes construction incredibly difficult, right? So, so you have a major, major fire. That kind of stuff happens. Um, another w- really, really difficult thing that happened two years ago, you may or may not remember, there was a massive freeze event in Texas. Massive snowstorms all through Texas. And we have big exposure in Dallas, some in Houston, um, what do
0: I feel like that was just last year?
1: I think it was a year and a half ago. Was that okay? I know that what was you're a, talking that was, about. That was maybe two winters ago. Now, now that that's we're that's how quick the time goes by. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I think hey, that was two yeah. years ago. Yeah, that was and, wild. Um, nobody could move around. Well, those property, none of those properties are engineered for those sub sub zero temperatures. So you can imagine the damage across our entire portfolio. I mean, it, that stretched our teams beyond belief, dealing with the repercussions of that, the flooded units. The people without heat and power, because like, some of the properties were without power for like a week. I mean, the whole Texas power grid failed during that issue, yeah. right? And, you know, I got I got this amazing picture of, of one of our property managers, her husband, got his pickup truck and was literally hauling garbage away because the garbage trucks couldn't get there from the complex just to do us a favor. He didn't work for us, yeah. you know, but... You know, he wanted to take care of his wife, who loves the company, and she was doing everything she could to not yeah, let the garbage she, pile her up. Yeah, hands were tied. Right? And so, this, I got this picture, and there he is, this poor guy in a pickup truck, throwing bags of garbage out of the dumpsters at this complex, because the trash people weren't coming, and there was no power, and all these issues. You know, and he was by himself, in the snow and ice, hauling this garbage for us. Tr- you know, and people, like, stepped up in an unbelievable way. Like, the, the humanity we saw of our team members trying to make our tenants comfortable was the most amazing thing ever. But... Putting it all back together was man. It was the biggest challenge I think some of our people have ever seen.
0: That is crazy, right? That's and wild. we
1: crazy things happen in apartments. Like yeah. early in, early in my career, we <laughs> own an apartment complex in in Atlanta, Texas. Uh, Texas, crazy Atlanta, or Atlanta weird. Georgia. Like crazy or weird. This is this is a weird story. Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know why I said Texas, Atlanta. So um, we got a call that there had been a double murder suicide in one of our units. And an estranged boyfriend climbed up to the second floor with a gun and killed his girlfriend, who was our tenant, and her, and her, like, 21-year-old daughter, and then took his own life in this unit. And it was, like, all over the news. And this was pretty early on in our careers. And we're like, what do we do? Like, and it was, like, name of the complex, oh all over the news. Gosh. And um, And, you know... It sort of blew over a few days later there wasn't much leasing action for you know we're like is this going to kill the reputation of the property but you know people have short memories and a week later people started touring again and we're like what do we do with this unit like there's blood everywhere right so we got disaster cleanup cleaned it up repainted recarpeted got it new and literally the craziest thing ever is we had a we had a tenant come and say hey i really wanted to be in that unit would you guys lease me that unit are you guys going to lease it or like, uh, yeah, we're going to lease it. They're like, I really want that unit. So somebody actually, one of our own tenants, asked us to transfer into that unit because they, they preferred the view from that balcony.
0: Oh, so they weren't worth No, they, they didn't care. Definitely short They didn't care. Like, they're like, yeah, we don't care. Oh,
1: man. And then that thing blew over. But, I, you know, we thought, like, this is going to kill us. Yeah. And it Nobody's didn't. Nobody's ever going to want that unit again. It didn't. Or? It didn't. Um, There's heartbreak, too. Like, you know, we had a child drown in a pool in a property we used to manage in Boise. And there's no lifeguards on duty. All yeah. the signs, all the gates are locked. There was no fault on our side, but it was yeah. just, you know, a, a babysitter or something just lost, you know, just wasn't paying attention. And the heartbreak of the family, I mean, this, this stuff becomes personal yeah. sometimes, right? It's, it's a, it can be a hard business. And I have investors, so I can't let people who don't pay their rent, who have fallen on hard times, stay either. Yeah. But you want to have a heart, so you want to help people. And, like, during the pandemic, we did a lot of helping people. But it's still at the end of the day, I, I gotta collect rent because I have investors I owe fiduciary duty to. So, you know, those are some of the hard things that come with you know, running a business like this. It's not always it's not always sunshine and positive returns, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and this is a year where returns are gonna be negative because the pricing's coming down on all this stuff, right? And so it's not a great year. But you know, there'll be great years in the future. So you just have to you just kinda have to hold on when times are tough. And, and get through it. And like the Great Recession, like I told you, we thought it was going to kill us. It killed most of our competitors. Yeah. It should have killed us, but it didn't. We kind of figured out how to fangle our way through it and get through it. And picked up some orphans. Right. And picked up all these orphan <laughs> deals. <laughs> we became the adopted parents. And, you know, a lot of those people are still invested with us today. There you go. <laughs> so, because, you know, you work hard and you do a good job. Yeah. And you're, you'd be as honest and ethical as you can.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. So, you That's know, awesome. hopefully, hopefully
1: you don't get too much chalk on your shoes, right?
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, I'm going to pivot now into All the right.
1: motorsports world. All right, sounds good.
0: Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so when I, we're talking
0: motorsports, we're talking cars. We're talking cars. Car
1: yeah, cars. I, 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 so I'm a late bloomer. Okay. In motorsports, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of start that way. But my very first experience with falling in love with speed when I was 16 years old. I, I'm, I'm from. Um, I'm from a town called Clovis, New Mexico, which is out on the edge of West Texas. So, imagine it's like as flat as this table for as far as you can see. Kay. Section lines, okay? Country town. And one of my buddies, one of my best friends, his mother in the 60s bought a 67 Shelby Cobra. And literally, this car was in the, there they were ranchers. This car was in a barn under. Are talking a, like Eleanor or? We're talking Eleanor. Okay. 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 <laughs> so, so, so this, I'm 16 years old my buddy John Pierce. Uh, and so John and I pull a, literally pull a tarp off this old dusty Mustang. And it needed a new paint job. And we got this thing running. Mostly John, but me a little bit. I'm not super mechanical. And, uh, and we're like, well, let's see how fast this thing is. <laughs> 16 so years old. We're 16 years old. This is how stupid we are. So we're like, man, these tires are flat. This car probably hadn't run for a decade. Okay, So think about how important tires are. Yeah. We're like, how are we going to blow these up? He's like, well, I got a propane tank over here. So we use propane. To blow these tires oh, up oh. on this car,
0: <laughs> <laughs> old tires, old tires, More propane. Tires.
1: We took that car out on a country section road, which is long and straight. We had that thing going 165 miles an hour, and then we we couldn't. It overheated, so we we could do these really short bursts because we, we we didn't know what the frick was going on with the it's radiator. 16 years old. Yeah. So luckily, that car, that car, the way it was manufactured, had a single roll hoop in it. Yeah. And they had these two little shoulder belts and then a thing you'd clip on. So it wasn't a five-point, but it was kind of like a weird three-point from the yeah. 60s. Think thing was original, original, original. That thing was so bad, you could spin it in every gear all the way into fourth gear. You could spin the tires. That thing had so much torque. It was a big old th- – I think it was a 350 with a holly carb. And you, you would open up the carb, and fuel would just dump into the motor. No, it was a two eighty nine. It was a Shelby two eighty nine enhanced motor. He bought it. I don't know what the frick he did. That thing was so ridiculous. How did you just come across this? <laughs> I don't like, know this should be in his a movie. Mom, I mean, his mom just. I'm sure his mom probably still has it. She was never going to sell it, but they they just didn't want to spend the money to restore it. This was in. I'm old. Remember, this was in 1987. And this was your friend. This it is was my his friend's, friend's car. Parents. Yeah. And oh, so, okay. like, ever since that event, I've had like this need for speed. Yeah. So. um I invest a lot in real estate and a lot of other things. I'm not investing in cars. I don't invest in cars. Like, I'm not one of these guys that has beautiful collector cars. I'm a guy who gets a car and wants to see what it can do. That's kind of always been my mentality. So I've always kind of been hard on cars. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, six years ago, I had one of my kids turn 16. He was really into cars. And we were trying to look for something where the two of us could connect. On. Like, his older brother played baseball, and I helped coach baseball. And his older sister was into lacrosse. And he really loved cars. So I'm like, you know what we're gonna do? The two of us are gonna start going out for track days. And This is gonna be our thing. And so we got him a, a an older Subaru WRX, and I bought myself an old E30 BM, uh, E36 uh, M3 BMW. Okay. And these were just our two cars. And there's like street cars. We'd just drive them out there, and we'd go run around the little HPDE groups. That, that How did Matt, you know about? How did how'd
0: you know about track day and stuff? How'd well, you so my see that? I have
1: an older brother who had had me come to a few track days with him in Arizona, like a decade before that. And we had like old E, he had an old E30, and I, I, I kind of built an old E30 with him yeah. down there. We did a few like entry entry level track days. We didn't know jack about motorsports, like the whole hobby. Yeah. So, what it is, ends up happening is we both start getting faster and faster, and we kind of start moving up the HPD ladder, and people are like, you might want some safety equipment. And then it's like, and your son's getting pretty fast, and then it's like, maybe you guys should buy real race cars. So, then we bought a couple of real race cars. Um, we had a Ford FR-500. We had a, a Spec-Z, uh, you know, 300Z Spec-Z uh, model. And we were just do- mostly doing time trial stuff. And then for whatever reason, like about three years ago, I'm like, I want to get my race license and start racing. So I called Matt Guyver, and I'm like, hey, Matt, I want to get my race license. He's like, excellent. I'd love to have you go get it. I think you're ready. And so I, I did a few sprint races out at Miller and uh, And they were super fun, but I was not particularly fast. I was like middle of the pack at best yeah and um and I did that for like I did four or five races one season. The next season, my one son left, but I had a younger son, my my youngest kid had started doing a little cart racing because we kind of wanted him to grow up. Matt let him start driving out there when he was fifteen before he had his license, and he was pretty good, you know but he was they're they're careful they' they watch people as they climb the ladder, yeah, and then last year. I'm like, all right, let's get him his race license. And what what ended up happening is I I moved to a new shop, uh, a group called Works 45, Pete Mercier, an incredible guy. Pete was a pro racer in his 20s and 30s and then basically spent the rest of his career as a pro race engineer. Like he's won Daytona 500 and stuff as an engineer for his teams. Like he's like a legit auto engineer. And so he started a new shop out there and he does a bunch of restoration of really high-end, uh, classics, uh, high end race car restoration. Is this out at Desert this Peak? Is, this is out. No, this is out at at, at uh, UMC. Oh, campus. okay. So he's got a big shop on the campus out there. At oh, UMC. okay. And um, and and he he and his partner is a car collector and has a bunch of Ferraris and and Porsches and some really interesting cars out there. And so we moved over to him and I and I said to him, I want to do something different. I've got these old race cars that keep breaking down. I want to do something different. And he's like a GT4 class car would probably be a pretty good car for you. So we started, we went shopping, and he knew Steve Dynan uh, pretty well, and Steve Dynan, who, who did Dynan Motorsports, you know, with BMWs, Dynan sold He sold it, but he, run, he still runs a, an IMSA race team. And they had two Audi R8 GT4s that they were selling. But they're like, but if you want them, you got to buy both of them. We're not going to sell them one at a time. So I got a pretty good deal on two Audi R8s. So we got them, and we're like, well, what are we going to do with these now? So we did a few sprint races at UMC, and then we said... Let's go try some endurance races. This was last season. So we signed up for a race with this group called World Racing League, and we went out to Road America, which is in uh, Wisconsin, which is, you know. This is a WRL, right? This is a WRL race, yeah. And so this is our very first one. (coughs) And, you know, we didn't really know the car setup. And um,
0: when you say endurance, how long are we talking? uh,
1: This was a – I think that first race was an eight-hour race. Okay. And so – so basically, as part of this process of me getting these cars, a really good friend of mine named Corey Brand bought into the team with me, basically. And he, we'd had other cars together, and he'd been racing a little longer than I had, and he'd, he and I were always out there together running around, and he has, like, an LMP car and some other really fun cars. And he, he started actually racing motorcycles, but he's, he's like, you know my age, mid fifties, and I think after separating a few shoulders on the racetrack, he's like, I got to move to cars. <laughs> yeah. Put it on <laughs> and, four. And he's a, he's a full send personality. And you know, at one point, Matt <laughs> told me like, you get to for you to get faster, you gotta you, you know, you you are old and you worry about risk. And I'm like, well, yeah, I run a business, I have a family, like, you know, so it's been me kind of trying to get more and more comfortable with risk to get faster and faster. So anyway, we did that race and it was really fun. And we placed like 10th or something, which was pretty good, given that we hadn't really set the car up. Uh, we did the six-hour Utah Enduro in that race. Uh, we got hit by a BMW, which kind of threw us off our game. We probably would have podium that race. And then we went out and did another WRL race at High Plains, in uh, which is outside of Denver. And we did okay in class. I think we were fifth or sixth or something. It was a smaller field on that particular race. And then we said, at that point, we said, Let's go hit a real season next year. Let's get the cars really dialed in. Let's the, us start really training. You know, I've dropped 10 pounds. I'm doing a lot more cardio because the, the race stints are long. You know, when you're, when you do, we, we do a fuel tank stint, right? So it's because you, you want to minimize pit stops to, yeah. to places high. The car holds about an hour and 20 to an hour and 30 fuel. So when you're in a race car at race pace, for an hour and 20 or an hour and 30 Yeah, 20 we're minutes. not talking
0: an hour driving on the freeway on cruise no, control.
1: Yeah, I mean, I so I always start my Apple Watch. How many calories do you think I would burn in an hour and 20 minutes in a race car?
0: Just you asked me that, so now I'm going to say hi. I, yeah, well, I <laughs> mean, I don't, what do you got?
1: Between 1,000 and okay. 1,200 calories.
0: So I was going to say 2,000. Yeah, yeah, out I mean, 2, I, So, But I mean, but even that, think about that. That's, that's like, that's almost of, yeah. like
1: what you'd burn running a half marathon. Run. 1, I've, run, I've run a few half marathons recently, and, I, and I, I'll burn like 1,500 calories or something.
0: Yeah. <coughs> in an hour and a half. An hour and a half, thousand and to y- twelve hundred. 1200, 1,
1: 1,200 typically is what the range is, because there's so much adrenaline. <laughs> yeah, because you're fighting cars the whole time, and then there's so many G forces. I mean, it's 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 a it's a much more intense hobby than you would
0: think. I definitely don't burn that much while um, my cruise control headed to Brigham City. Not at all, right?
1: Night, <laughs> not, not at all, and so. So anyway, we all like committed to really get in really good shape. I, and Pete's one of our drivers, so it's Pete, Corey, me, and then my 18 year old son Nick are our drivers for this season. Okay. <coughs> so last season, we're like, we got to get Nick in shape. And Nick, Nick, of course, this was Nick's advice to me to get faster lap times: drive it into the corner like you're gonna die, and then catch it. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, Nick, that's not great advice for somebody who's like coming up the ranks, right? Uh, <laughs> and that's how Nick drives. And now Nick is our fastest driver on the team. He is as fast, probably right on top. He and Peter right on top of each other. You know, so Nick's basically matching pro-level times. <coughs> so he's super fast. But we got Nick his license last summer, and then we took him. He raced in the 6-iron Duro in one of my other cars, and then we went and did an endurance race at Laguna Seca. Uh, Matt Guyver came with us. He was our spotter, and he was really helping us, and, and we placed second in that race. But that was a Where NASA. Where is Laguna Seca? It's in Monterey, California. Okay. And so that was a NASA-sponsored race, some uh, club racing. Pretty competitive. WRL is a whole different level. Like, we go to these WRL races, and, you know, there will be 20 or 30 cars in our class and 60 or 70 cars overall. These are huge races, and they're very competitive. So we set out this season to basically check the bucket list for every really cool track, and we've been working really hard to get faster, each of us individually as well as the car. And, um... But, you know, we're guys who are starting racing in our 50s. We're not yeah. going to be as fast as a 20-year-old young sh- hotshot pros. And every one of these teams we're racing against has at least one pro. And so it's been really competitive and really hard. But um, we've kind of said this is about experiences for us. It's about experience with me with my son. It's about experience with me with my really good friends, Pete and Corey. And, um, and they've been incredible. So this season we've done Road Atlanta, which is where they have the, the Michelin uh, Petit Le Mans every year. That track is no joke and super high consequence. (laughs) Like, it's freaky. We did Barber Motorsports Park. That's where they have the National Porsche uh, School. Okay. And that's in Birmingham, Alabama. Incredible track, amazing facility. Last month, we were at Mid Ohio Raceway, which is in Mid Ohio, as you might guess. And it's a very historic raceway. IMSA races there, IndyCar races there every year still. Um, In two weeks, we're going to, uh, to Road America, which is the National Park of Speed. And then. In June, we're hitting Daytona, and we're doing a 14-hour t- race at Daytona. It's a nine-hour race at Road America. And then we'll take a little break for the summer and hit the Utah six-hour, and then there's a couple other you know things on the calendar for this year. Is so it's, r- a, it's a big race season for us, and it's a traveling circus because we take our race car. We've, we, the cars are twins, but we, got, we made one a little lighter. Yeah. But we always take the second car in case we break down or get hit. Like last year, we this got hit. This is racing, yeah. We got hit at Road America last year and had to pull a bunch of parts off the spare car, and, we, and it helps us on practice days. Uh, it's a full hauler with all that equipment and a full crew. So it's like a traveling circus every time we go anywhere, right? And
0: right so it's like rad. an
1: insane, that's why I'm saying you take a big pile of money and turn it, and it into a sh- very small pile of money very quickly. <laughs> but we're having the season of a lifetime for a bunch of guys that are our age. I mean, it's been, it's been an experience like I've never had before. Is, right, there you know.
0: a tr- is there a track in particular that you're looking forward to?
1: Um, I'm really looking forward to being on Road America again. It's a very fast track pretty high consequence but incredibly fast and fun <coughs> i mean daytona is amazing because the road course there is part banking part infield it's the same track that I run the 24 hours of daytona on okay that will be an amazing experience for us uh and then if we get enough points to qualify we'll get invited to circuit of the americas in austin where you know it's an f1 track in december and that's kind of that's kind of the holy grail i think
0: that's awesome
1: and that's awesome. That's a new modern track. Some of these other tracks are narrow, and the walls are close, and, you know, things happen. It's racing. I mean, it's, you know, our wives <laughs> all think we're totally crazy. But, you know, and my, and my business partners are like, man, don't die. But, you know, I have more friends that I hear about getting hurt on their road bikes oh, yeah. than I know about guys getting hurt in their race cars. Yeah. Which I know sounds kind of silly, but.
0: What, what would you say to somebody that's thinking about it? Wanting to go out to NASA and just go right around. Yeah, inside. I mean, I,
1: I think it is an incredible – there's an incredible amount of camaraderie out there. I made a ton of friends going out there. Like, just to take your car and go put it on a track and see what you're capable of, see what the car's capable of. There's tons of mentorship and coaching available to get you better. And then if you get to the point you want to start really racing cars, you know, you don't have to do what we're doing. What yeah. we're doing is pretty – we're on a national scale, and it's super competition – just the NASA races alone are super fun, and they're super intense, and you can do it on a budget that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a, our biggest class out here are the Miatas, and you can buy a Miata race car for, I don't know, 10 or 15 grand, you can find somebody that'll maintain it for you, and the tires are not that expensive, all the way up to there's guys that are running their Porsche Cup cars every weekend out there, um, and, and those are really fun too. They're a little more expensive to run, and then there's guys like us that are, you know, taking stuff all around the country, and so you can kind of the sky's the limit. But honestly, for next season, you know, are we gonna do another WRL season? I, I don't know. We might. But we also <laughs> might be like, let's just do a season at NASA yeah. and and kind of work on honing our skills. The other thing that our our coaches, we also have another coach named Chris Stone who works with Pete. Chris is also a former pro. And Chris and Pete are really coaching all of us to get faster. They had us buy shifter carts. And I, I don't know if you've ever done any cart racing.
0: I have the shifter carts I've always wanted to get into.
1: So, I will tell you, the shifter card is probably the most frightening thing I have ever driven. It is, they're so ridiculously fast. What they, it, like they'll
0: eight, do a 80, 125 cc two strokes. What yeah,
1: I don't even know. I, I think they're 100 cc two strokes. Uh, but they will do 100 miles an hour. And you're sitting on the ground and you're not buckled in. And the corners come at you so fast and they have so much grip. Very and, responsive. And they're incredible to drive, right? And so. The reason they have us training in the carts is because everything happens so fast. When you get back in the race car, it slows it, it all. It slows down. everything down. And so we're trying to cart, you know, every other week all through the season. And carting, when you're our age, carting hurts. Oh, like dear. you wear rib protectors, the whole thing. You and I'm sore for two or three days after carting. I, I mean, can't it's do just roller
0: coasters anymore. Like I know some of those are brutal.
1: How old are you? Only thirty eight. Yeah. Okay. So so I'm fifty two, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, and that,
0: like I get it.
1: And so and and I'm in probably the best shape I've ever been in, right? Because I'm trying to be in great shape for these endurance races. Uh, but endurance racing, it's it's a studly ho- it's a studly hobby, man. It's like it's no joke, right? Because there's you got pit stops and fuel changes and tire changes and driver changes. I mean, there's so much that happens during an endurance race and then the car has to run at race pace for 8 hours. Y- you think about it every one of those races is like an entire season yeah. out of NASA. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: Right? So every between every race we got to tear the cars down and make sure all the suspension's good. I mean, it's it's
0: insane. What is the high like racing? What like what is th- what's the feeling? Um, what I would tell I I I don't know if you
1: do a lot of high adrenaline stuff. Yeah. When you keep the adrenaline level high for more than an hour, you come out of the car. I mean, you're just like your whole body's just like freaking out, shaking, and you're just like your adrenaline is just dumping. And you're just like, did I seriously just do that? And was I fighting with that, you know, BMW for 20 minutes? And was I fighting with that Aston Martin or that Supra? Like, did that really happen? And the slower traffic, how did I manage getting through traffic in the corners? And I didn't, I didn't kill us. And I mean, I like in practice, I hit a tire wall. I went flying off the track and hit a tire wall in practice. You know, I'm like, oh crap, you know. Luckily, I didn't do too much damage. To the, it was a spare car, luckily. <laughs> it wasn't the race car. And I was like, things happen, right? And it's just like, it's, it's, it's one of the more intense things I do, right? And, you know, and I, I end up for work doing a fair amount of public speaking where I'll go to the, a big event where these broker-dealers will have me present to their reps uh, or I'll be at a conference. And I have to kind of put on that same mindset. Like, okay, I'm in front of 100 people. I'm in front of 200 people. Like, how am I going to deliver my race today? And I think racing has actually helped me, like, have the right mindset for business. It's actually improved my business mindset a little bit, strangely enough. And I think it's helped me in racing, too. Like, okay, how can I get faster? Like, I know what I can do in business. Can I do it in racing? Now, the truth is, you know, I'll come back, and I'll probably be a much better driver after this season because of all this competition. I still won't be the fastest guy out there. Yeah. There's, always, there's always somebody faster. There's always somebody that has a nicer house. There's always somebody that has a better car. You know, it's just how life is. And so you got to find happiness in wherever you are. And um, for me, happiness is in experiences. Happiness is in the people I love. It's, in, it's spending time with my friends. And so this season, it's been, you know, we have a group. We all, we all really care about each other. We all really get along. My son's getting great mentorship from Pete and from Corey and from Chris Stone, which is really fun for me to see. Yeah. So it's just like all these elements came together to make it worth kind of what we're spending on doing it. For me, at least personally,
0: that's that's a- awesome, and
1: it's been and it's been great. And Matt Geiger's been a huge support of ours, right? He's come to a few races to help support us, and he's been pushing us along. And and um, we haven't been making a bunch of the NASA weekends recently because the cars are always broken down now between our endurance races, trying to get them rebuilt for the next race when the NASA weekends are happening. So our calendars have been a little bit off. But I would guess by the end of the season, we're probably back out there chasing guys around. The track here too is an incredibly safe track. It's probably one of the safest tracks I've ever driven. It's modern track. It's wide. There's a lot of room for going two-by-two or even three-by-three through some of the corners. Uh, But if you go off the track here, there's a lot of run-out room before you get into any tire walls or any concrete walls and tons of gravel. Most of these epic bucket list racetracks are old. They're in really tight locations. There's trees everywhere. It's a very different kind of thing. So to learn out here is a real blessing, I think, for anybody who has it. So for anybody who is interested in cars, I would would absolutely spend time out here because it's like a gem we have in our back door right here, and it's safe and easy. The only downside to this track, I mean, it has an amazing facility. It's the only downside. There's not much elevation here. Yeah. Most tracks for racing have all these big hills and blind corners and drop-offs and all sorts of things that this is a pretty flat track. We have one little section that has a little bit of elevation, and that's pretty much it.
0: Really? Like, that's the last thing that I thought of, that there'd be a bunch of elevation changes on a track.
1: Yeah, So, so all the great tracks have really, really interesting elevation changes yeah. may, uh, or really complex corners, things that make them really interesting, yeah. more than you would expect. And, and we, we all drive simulators a lot to, to, you know, practice for the tracks. And the simulators are great. What, kind of
0: where, what are these simulators? Hold on. What simulators? Where can you go on a simulator? I mean, I, you know, we, we
1: kind of have our own simulators. Yeah. You buy them and you basically get a, the, a simulator rig. Yep. Most guys who are really serious into racing will do it because it, it allows them to go to a new track and learn it and drive it.
0: They had like a race league that was coming out. Oh, there's, yeah, the iRacing is a whole everything. thing. Oh, it's, a yeah, f- it's yeah. massive.
1: It's like a massive eSports thing, right? Yep, yep. But like I have, I have like three panels, big panels, right? And yeah. then I have a seat that moves and stuff. Corey has a really exotic one. The whole thing, it moves. It's like the cage rolls around on him. He gets the full rotation. It's incredible, actually.
0: That is wild.
1: And um, there's a lot of different ways you can build them. There's budget ones. So all, these, uh, so all these ones like Corey has, you know, kind of everything in between. Mine's kind of an in-between one. But, you know, you get the feeling of being on track. It's, it's actually really incredible. And the and the, the, mo- the the computer models are pretty good. Like, the, And you can pretty much, any car you want to drive is on there, and they've engineered it, and they've got the tire models for the grip levels, and the different track surfaces have all been laser scanned. It's pretty incredible. What's Unfortunately, our track is not on iRacing. Yeah. But, um, but all these great tracks that we're hitting this year, our bucket list tracks are all there.
0: What's the software?
1: It's called iRacing.
0: iRacing. Racing.
1: Yeah. You could literally start with just like a steering wheel and a set of pedals. Yeah. And start with iRacing with that on a single screen, and then as you get into it, you can move up. It's actually super fun. My, my and you can crash the car as much as you want, take as much risk as you want, <laughs> and then you just reset it and keep going. <laughs> it doesn't cost you $50,000 if you put it in a tire wall.
0: <laughs> my, my background was is a competitive motocross. So oh, it was. okay several well, yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, okay. So yep, you know. Yep, we did uh, tracks. I did flat track, which I really love flat track. I okay. love just the wide open, laying cool. the bike down. Had a really bad wreck with that at full speeds.
1: But I bet you did, yeah. So but you, you and Corey would have a lot to talk about. I, I, I've <sighs> never been a motorcycle guy. I, I just got into it late in life. And it, like this age i'm like well i don't think it's safe for me to start jumping on motorcycles
0: no and i i i like i get so excited i start jonesing out like when i went and went with uh the ride along with matt yeah it's it's uh that that gets me super excited i i i kind of get one with the car i can feel it like i could and and i could i was feeding off matt's energy because i could feel matt was really pushing it yeah like he was really wanting to show me what was going on and I could feel that car like on the verge, just him pushing it. And I it, that gets me so excited.
1: Some of the best racers are guys that have come from the motocross world. Because you have racecraft, you understand speed, you understand that you can't open up the throttle until you get the thing pointed in the right direction. Correct. More so on a motorcycle even than a car sometimes. Turning and, as and, well. And, yeah. And and, and and rotation's important. Obviously it's harder to rotate a car than a motorcycle. Um, and you've got the need for speed. And you've got, you know, You've got the risk calculator in your mind figured out already.
0: You've got that come into the corner like you, you were saying. Yeah.
1: I mean it's, it's all about corner speed, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And and hanging on to it. And and you know, it's harder for somebody. I'm I'm like a slow learner, I think, in motorsports right? I'm gonna you know, I go to these I go to these WRL races, I'm probably, you know, bottom fifty percent out of all the different drivers. I'm probably closer to the middle of the pack, but I'm not I'm not top fifty percent, I'm probably bottom fifty percent. Now I'm like a second and a half off or two seconds off where Corey Brandon, and he's like a second and a half off where Nick is, and Nick's the fastest. We're pretty tight, and that's why, you know, our last race we took fourth place, which is our best result yet at Mid-Ohio, because we're, we're tightening it. I'm getting faster. Corey's getting faster. Nick's getting faster. Pete's all getting faster. But we're tightening the variability. I'm not like 10 seconds off the pace. And there are definitely guys that show up at these races Yeah, that are we call them the gentleman drivers, which kind of like us guys who are sponsoring or the gentleman drivers, that are 10 seconds off the pace. But then their pro is like at the pace. And so the closer you can get everybody on the pace, the better we're going to be.
0: It's just it's just cool that there's just a wide variety of people. You know what I mean? Like it's the, awesome. The HPD and everything like that. Oh, just a wide variety of anybody people. Anybody at any skill level can go out there and have fun with their car. And do what you want. Get better if you want to. Stay where you're at. Do whatever you sure. want. And enjoy it. And it's, like we were talking about, way safer than motorcycles. It's way
1: it's way safer. I mean, I for a long time I said I'm just going to do time trials because I really like – there's some passing. You're hanging out there with a bunch of fast guys, but you're not taking much risk. And then whatever happens, some switch went off my head. I'm like, I got to race.
0: And that might happen. Uh, you know, right? I mean, yeah. And, and
1: so, you know, I would encourage you to get out there. And just start doing some track days. Man,
0: I, we've got a car in our shop. Oh, over, you do? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, you, so. need to, you just need to start taking the time to get out there. And that's, that's the plan for this year. Okay. My old man as well, he's always... Like he, you know, he's gonna enjoy this podcast because he just he loves that kind of stuff. He was wanting to get into that i racing big. So
1: i racing is really great. Like honestly, you can almost have as much fun i racing as real racing because they they have leagues, they have the whole thing. I don't use it for the leagues. I use it for practice. coaching and practice. But um, you know, maybe next year I'll use it for the leagues. You know, and, and honestly, cart racing is super fun too. I mean, cart racing is and cart racing is super low budget. By the way, a set of tires for the Audi is like twenty five hundred bucks. A set of tires for your cart is like two hundred bucks.
0: I've thought about <laughs> that, too, because that would be fun, especially for my kids and stuff Well, like they
1: Well, they have the four cycles, which are super fun, and you learn momentum. Yeah. They have the 100ccs, which is the most competitive league out here. And now kind of a league of the shifter cart guys is starting to show up again, too. And the 100ccs are pretty almost as fast as the shifter carts. They're just a single speed versus the shifters. Mm. There's a lot going on with the shifters, right? You've got to be shifting and driving. Um, and it's, it's super intense. The like,
0: single speeds, like recluse clutches or something? I yeah. don't even know
1: what the, I don't know how they work, actually.
0: Yeah. More like a snowmobile?
1: Probably more like a snowmobile. Yeah. Yeah. They, awesome. they, they, they're, they boogie. I mean, they're only a couple seconds a lap off what the shifters are. So they're really fast. That's awesome. And there's a, it's a very, very competitive group. You get out there and you get your butt kicked. You're like, wow, I thought it was fast. You yeah. know, maybe I'm fast in some circles, but you get in other circles, <laughs> and you learn yeah. once again. Like, like dang. yeah, there's
0: always somebody faster. <laughs> there's always somebody <laughs> with a bigger house. It's, it just right. Is but, but, it's
1: you know, but part of racing is being in the game. Yeah. So anyway, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just a journey. I'm having a blast with it. I don't know how long I'll keep doing it. My son's graduating and going to college this year, you know. Uh, so this is his last year, probably on, the, on dad's race budget, if you will.
0: <laughs> and then it might take him a minute. But we'll see,
1: you know, we'll kind of see where he wants to go. And both of my two youngest sons are both pretty good drivers. The, the, the number two, he, uh, the first one I started with, he kind of hit time trials, and then he went to college before I'd ever even gotten into full racing. So yeah. the, the younger kid has gotten the benefit of me he's racing about ready to come back. He might. Yeah, I'm trying to. He's really busy now. He's at the up at the U getting his green finance and doesn't have a lot of time for, for my shenanigans, but you know, at some point. If That's he stays, awesome. if he stays close.
0: That's awesome. Well, I I appreciate you coming on. Hopefully. Yeah, this is
1: fun. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. I want to have
0: you on after your races.
1: Okay. Yeah, happy to talk about it. I, I did a segment. I don't know if Matt sent it to you. There's a live broadcast of the races. And a pretty good group of followers, maybe 6,500 people have tuned in. And, they, and I was on for about a 20-minute stint during the last eight-hour broadcast. I can send you the link, actually. Send me that, yeah. Because they, they were asking a lot of questions about the car and issues we'd had with the car. And they, and they had been saying, we're really surprised that this Works45 team is up at the top, you know, near that's the front of the cool. pack, because historically, we didn't think this particular car would do very well. And they, that's how we started that's the conversation. And, cool. and, and I talked a lot about the car and the shop and, and more kind of race technical stuff. Yeah. yeah, We didn't talk, obviously we didn't talk about any of the kind of real estate stuff we did today, but That's
0: you know, you're awesome. in the business,
1: so you understand the real estate stuff.
0: Yeah. some A lot of that time, like I, I'm envious of you with that though too, because my I don't have the time in it that you have, so some of the stuff you talk about, it sounds like you're Building a spaceship, but <laughs> and then that, and I know that that's a super, super important part of life, and yeah, stuff. For, for sure. And so that, that kind of frustrates me. And I hopefully uh, in the future I can dig more into it more on the financial side and stuff like that. I mean, I,
1: I've always told people you can make good money providing service, yeah, but you can never make a lot of money unless you own equity. You got to own equity, e- whether it's in real estate or in a business. Now, obviously, you're building a business, so yep. you own equity in the business yep. you're building, and I tell people. It's always about, you gotta, if, you, if you own equity in a business, it's got to be a business you can scale, right? You can't, yes. be a, you can't be a dog washer and scale that business, right? But you if you have very a, tough. Yeah, yeah be very tough, hard. right? And the margins are low. Yes. So if it's a decent margin business that you can scale, it can be worth a lot of money. Construction businesses are actually lower margin, but they, they have a lot of scale capabilities, right? If you look yeah, at yeah. the value of, like, when Layton sold itself out, and some of these big companies that sell themselves, they yeah. have a lot of value, but they've taken generations to create that. Guys who invest in real estate over long periods of time can do really, really well, but it's about owning and controlling equity. And it's the same for these tech entrepreneurs who make all this money. They only make all that money because they actually own the equity and then the business grows and has success, right? And and nobody really is an overnight success. I mean, y- you know, you look at Ryan Smith and his business; those guys were slaving away for ten years before they started having real success. Yeah, people forget that about people, right? Yeah, they just see them and think, they "Oh, that guy's so successful." After. Yes, yeah. yeah. Right, but they don't really think about all the sweat, blood, and tears that have gone into it along the way. So, my 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 advice to people is just figure out how to own equity in whatever it is you love doing.
0: Yeah. And so then we, go, and then go do it. We're we're putting together our five year plan right now with the company. Yeah. Just to uh, you know to keep growing, keep progressing. Construction is uh, it's it's volatile. It's a, it's a cyclical business for you sure. You can win big, you can lose big. It is it's it's a little bit more risky. It's not your safer option, but yeah. Yeah. I actually think in my view
1: construction almost seems harder when the market's just incredible and there's too much work. Cuz that's when guys can screw up bidding. When the market's tight 100%. and there's more people available, you've got a little more control over your time and destiny. I think you can do better. So when When
0: when the market's busy, um, everybody is just going in there. Like you just said, you can miss bids. Um, the labor is way less. You can't it's hard to get guys. What you might have budget, you're gonna have to pay more now to get the guys there. Totally. So it is it you is end a up, lot upside down really quick. You'll right. end up with a lot of fires going and if you're if you're creating fires, you're not making any money. Uh,
1: no doubt. Yeah, if all no you're
0: doubt. doing is trying to put out fires, you are not making any money.
1: Yeah. No, I get it. I get it.
0: It is, a, it is a wild sport, I say. It, it, is, it is a wild sport. But, but, you're it, in a great, but you're in a great
1: market. Salt Lake's going to keep growing for the next 30 years. I mean, you're in a great spot to be in to, to be able to grow your business, it, I, I believe.
0: And it could be th- knowing the construction side is super beneficial in the fact that um, I want to start developing eventually. Yeah,
1: and start owning, right? And, and start and, owning
0: and knowing the construction side of it or performing the construction side of it as well it can be very beneficial for, for, oh, for on my own stuff.
1: For sure. You know, I've had, I've had people in construction say, Hey, pay, let's pay all my, our guys, but take my construction fee and I want to be a piece of your equity. Exactly. We haven't done that with people. Exactly. The guys, that, those guys are like, as long as I pay all the bills and pay myself enough, I want to then reinvest it all in this deal. Cause I think this deal is going to be worth, you know, two X five years from now.
0: And there is, it's, it, you know, I can, I can do this project for you. And, and for me, I won't give you my fees. Yeah. But I want in on the project. Right.
1: Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I would do as much of that as you can afford to do. Yeah. At your at your age, especially, I mean, think about it. I started my business when I was thirty-five, this current business of mine. You know, and I'm I'm turning fifty three. So we almost twenty years. We started in 04. So I guess I was thirty four. <clears throat> right. So I was kind of your age. I was pretty close to your age when I started that business. And it's just, you know, we've had lots of ups and downs. Yeah. But the goal is I want to keep growing it. Like yeah. I'm like I'm too young to retire. Yeah. And and we I kind of I kind of believe I kind of believe you never stop working. I think your brain stays active if you keep working.
0: I think you need to. I think your body, your brain, yeah. everything it may not be this business, but I got to do it. something where I'm yeah. investing and Doesn't like It Doesn't need to be as stressful as what I'm in right sure. now. For sure. Yeah. No but, joke. I'm yeah. <laughs> keep doing it. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep moving no matter what it is that yeah. I'm doing.
1: Exactly. So
0: okay, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. This man. is great, dude. I appreciate it. Dude. It's super fun meeting you, man. Thanks, yeah. you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it.